Well, uh, I am kind of excited about this message because I had a good conversation with one of you in here a week or so ago, and uh, and it was about fundamentals. And uh, so I love it tonight that we had a chance to pray for one another. Uh, if you were here and you didn't ask for prayer, please do. I mean, if you need something, please do before you go because we can still pull on what God is has done and has given us. But uh, I'm going to talk to you about a familiar concept, and it's the New Covenant. We've talked about it before. I remember a few years ago I, I uh, tried to help us understand, and when I say us, I mean me too, you know, tried to help us understand how to relate to the New Covenant. Uh, I talked about it being, thinking about it like, like it being a land or a territory that has laws and, and rights and culture and stuff. I want to go a little deeper into that now. Um, I mentioned that I had that conversation about fundamentals, fundamentals to include praying for the sick, fundamentals to include knowing that God loves us, fundamentals to include knowing that people are included in that love and in the, in the purposes of God. And we're, we're working our way that way. Uh, in the process, I was reviewing some of the things we've talked about since we've been down here. We talked about the heart uh, and how we have to change the way we think about it. We can't just because it has the capacity to hold both good and evil, be afraid of it. Uh, you know, we ventured into looking at the wrath of God and, and saw it differently. Uh, that, that, that wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness, even ours. And the stuff that we would, in, in the quiet and vulnerable moments of our lives, beg God to allow us to take with us into heaven. But we just can't. Because <laughs> it wouldn't be heaven then. It would be some other place. And uh, th- there's just so much that we've looked at. And when we were talking, and th- I was thinking and praying about fundamentals after that. I said, Lord, what is it that brings these things together? Um, because I, I don't actually feel this way, but I'm vulnerable to the thought of it. That, that Larry, are you just like randomly coming across ideas that, that are good to talk about, but they don't, they don't connect anywhere? Except in, you know, it'd be nice if, if we thought better of our heart, or it'd be nice if we weren't afraid of the wrath of God, or whatever. And as a, as a consideration of, of fundamentals and foundations we're going through, I felt like the Lord began to speak to me about the new covenant and how important it is and how we don't know it. We don't, we don't act like it's important. And so the, uh, the thing I'm going to talk about is surrendering to the simplicity and joy of Jesus' relationship with his Father. And that, I believe, is the essence of the new covenant. Through the new covenant, we have access to the relationship that Jesus has with his Father. Through the new covenant, humanity is brought into that relationship through the vicarious work of Jesus Christ. And it's not just what he did on the cross, but that is the focal point of it. That's the nexus of it, the release of it. And so I want to go back and make sure we understand how important it is to have a high value to believe and to engage in our Christian faith, in our life, with our God, as people of the new covenant, as sons and daughters of the new covenant. Okay, so uh, what are the roots of the new covenant? And this is just, and, and man, oh man, when I was preparing these notes, I thought, oh God, help me not just turn this thing into a teaching session because I don't want it to be that. So we're going to fly through this, but I want you to understand that the new covenant is not. Okay, so I was uh, doing some study online, researching some other thoughts on it, seeing kind of contrasty. Somebody that I know and, and deeply respect, I mean, I really respect, and they do come from, from a reform uh, kind of background and stuff, but their their characterization of the new covenant in my mind, as I read it online, p- 
pretty much was just like a dismissal of it. And, and, and the reason is because they just go, the New Covenant, or to be understood as the New Testament. And I go, no, <laughs> no. So that's why I'm going back and showing you some roots of the New Covenant in the Old Testament. Okay, So I'm not going to teach through these because it's too complicated and probably above my pay grade anyway. But here's one of the first roots that I, that I think of when I think of the New Covenant. It's in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. So the first clue that I want to throw out here is, as to how to relate and think properly about the new, the new Covenant is that it is the government that rests upon the shoulders of this child. And who is this child? This child is Jesus. Now, what does it mean that the government rests on his shoulders? Well, we'll have to see. Uh, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government, of his peace. Now, listen to that line in conjunction with this next paragraph. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, there's a lot that's important about understanding the new covenant in this passage. First of all, it's rooted, it's rooted in Jesus. It's the government that rests on his shoulders that is imparted to the earth, to men, and it's the government that God ordains, declares, decrees about how he deals with us and we deal with him. That is on his shoulder. It also is a government that will have an uh, ever-going increase. And look at what it says. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. So the nature of this government is not a government at war. And it's not a government seeking to, to separate people out. It's, 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 it's peace. And when you read the New Testament, you begin, if, you have a, if, you, if we can establish a high view of the New Covenant, we're going to understand a lot about what Paul's talking about when he talks about he's made peace on the cross through his blood, he's, all this kind of stuff. And then the last one, the last line that I emphasize up there is the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. One of the other characterizations of the New Covenant that I see all the time is it's conditional. It's conditional upon some choice that we make. But no covenants have ever been that with God. Never. Not a single one. They all began with Him. They all were decrees of His purpose. And sometimes it was a, a unilateral covenant like it was with Abraham, or it was a unilateral covenant like it was with Noah. Sometimes it was a grace given in spite of not deserving it, like it was with David to be a, uh, a guy on the throne forever, a guy uh, who, who knew the heart of the Lord and worshipped him and found himself to be the apple of God's eye. That covenant of David carries right on through to today. The king on the throne is the son of David. So it, it, it's, it's... But the point is, it's not just an idea the Lord throws out there and tries to broker a deal with people. And when we think of the new covenant like that, like it's something that we get the benefit of after we uh, cash in a ticket or make a decision or step into it, we're thinking about it in an entirely wrong way. Entirely wrong. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish what he purposes. And that's where we're at. So that's one of the roots. The second one, and this is kind of long, sorry, but this is the one that is translated into Hebrews chapter 8, and it's from Jeremiah 31. And it starts with, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
my covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So the context is really clear here. This is what went on at Zion. This is what went on after the escape from Egypt, the deliverance from Egypt. And this is what manifests as the law and as the sacrificial system and as all of that, as the ordinances for living and everything else that carried on the way, all the way up through the death of Moses uh, into, into Joshua, taking them into the promised land and living beyond that. And it carried on in one form or another, However uh, poorly the people uh, were able to walk it out, it carried on all the way up to the time when Jesus walked the earth and until just uh, years after that. All right, it says, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, okay? Declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their hearts and I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach, again, any man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. I want you to think about that phrase for a second. Not until the last couple of years of my life have I ever considered or heard anyone consider the legitimacy and the practical legitimacy of that clause in this promise of a new covenant. I never have. I never have. I've seen people uh, uh, hunt and peck around having the law written in our hearts. I've seen people... Uh, you know, talk about God being our God. But the declaration that, that, that the zeal of the Lord is going to work this out, that everybody's going to know. They're not going to have to tell their neighbor. So anyway, it's in the prophecy way back when Jeremiah was prophesying uh, during the time when, when uh, Israel was in exile and there was you know, a remnant left and all this kind of stuff. It says, They will not teach any man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Now, I want you to understand that this is while the covenant of law was going on that this last line of this prophecy was given. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Okay? This is not just a New Testament concept. It's not a concept that sprang out of an understanding of what Jesus did on the cross. It is a prophecy and a covenant charter, a covenant intent on the heart of the, God, of the Father that preceded and led to what Jesus did on the cross. Okay, does that make sense? So the context is way deeper than just New Testament is what I'm trying to say. And then I think this is a part of it too. Ezekiel, there's two places in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 30, where Ezekiel had a vision of God. And, and uh, this one in 11 follows on the heels of saying, Lord, are you just going to abandon Israel forever? That was Ezekiel's cry to God. And the word of the Lord came and said, No, I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people, and I will be their God. The echoes of the New Testament promise, the new, I mean the new covenant promise, is in this prophecy of Ezekiel. And, and, and it wouldn't have done any good. Think of the contrast that's written in here, and I don't even know what it means, but I just want you to think about it. The law was written on tablets of stone, and it was external. In the New Covenant, the law is written on our hearts, on hearts of flesh, soft, living, responsive, and it's internal. That's the difference. That's the way to begin to understand the difference between the covenant and, and the purpose, the intent of the covenants were the same. If you go back and look at Exodus, God wanted, to, he, he declared, I want to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be in your midst. But they couldn't do it. They couldn't tolerate it. 
And in it, it uh, there's another passage that the Lord looked to see, I think this is in Isaiah, looked to see, you know, who could bring about salvation for him and he could find no man. So he did it with his own right hand. <laughs> he did it with his own right hand. Hey, Tim. All right, so those are the Old Testament roots of this. And I, I just want us to, I shared that because I want you to understand how specifically the the um, mechanics and ingredients of the, of the New Covenant were spoken of prophetically in the Old Testament. So what is the New Covenant? Well, Paul puts it this way, and this is both a good definition of it, something very uh, important to understand, but also the main reason I think that we have such a low view of the New Covenant in the, in the churches that we've all been in. So here in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed uh, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, uh, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you do this, uh, as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, in the majority of my Christian life, and any time I would talk to anybody about it, this verse is a verse about what? Communion, right? It speaks of the life. And I have waxed eloquent on communion. I've chopped up bread with machetes. I've done all kinds of things. And I've never, prior to this recent awakening, you had to be there for the chopping the bread with the machete. It was pretty dramatic. Um, I've never, ever touched the significance of what's said here. Because what's said, look at that line. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Now apply that statement to what Isaiah said. Apply it to what Jeremiah prophesied. Apply it to to God being their God and and us being his people in, in Ezekiel. This is the new covenant. Jesus is holding up this cup. This is the blood in the new covenant. All right, there's a couple of spots in the Gospels. Here's one. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given it, he gave, and given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is not as precise as what Paul said that he had received from the Lord, that, that Jesus was literally presenting the cup as the new covenant, okay? But the next one over here in Luke is, but look what this does say. It says it's poured out for the forgiveness of many. So there's no question forgiveness is in here, and I don't begrudge any of us, including me, that let these thoughts center around communion and the forgiveness of sin and the purification of our lives. Over in Luke, it goes on to say, but it's more specific. Jesus is more specific about saying, uh, and when he had taken some of the bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to him, said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he'd eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's the new covenant in my blood. So when we think about the new covenant, we have to think about Jesus. We have to think about the outpouring of his blood. We have to think about that part which was his body. And you understand that Jesus, as the Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, did not have blood to pour out until he was incarnate. The part that he took from Mary of us is what created the the, the elixir, if you will, 
the, 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 the constituent chemical component of the new covenant. It's in, in, the, in the life is in the blood. So you can run back to the uh, prologue of John and uh, that life became the light of men and that light has enlightened every heart. The new covenant is, is about the life of Jesus. Okay? All right, so what is the new covenant? First of all, it's the manifestation of the poured out blood and the finished work of Jesus. It's not just a contract and it's not just a celebration with bread and wine. It literally is the, 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 the residual, cosmic, earthly, historic manifestation of the life of Jesus being spilled on the cross. Okay? And, and you could say that it is literally Jesus himself. He's the new covenant. Because the, the death was not the end. The resurrection and the life that came from that resurrection... That's the nature of the new covenant. Before, when I was talking about it, I was trying to give us, you know, like a couple years ago, I was trying to give us something concrete to think about, and I was thinking, let's talk about like a land or territory. I don't think that's necessarily bad, but you can miss that point if you just think that you're within the boundaries of, of the new covenant. No, you're in the person of the new covenant. Look at this. It's the current and forevermore declaration of the governance of God. Now, this is a little bit complicated, and I don't know that I'm going to be able to make it what's in my heart clear, but, but I'm starting to see this, and it's terribly exciting. So the new covenant is the current and the forevermore declaration of the governance of God by God in his relationship to man. So perhaps it's easier to think about it a little bit more. God makes a declaration when he makes a covenant, right? So he made a, a, a declaration in the covenant of creation with Adam and Eve. And he said, you're going to be fruitful and multiply. And you're going to have dominion over the earth and, and all of that. Now, they messed up by going out independent and, and, and choosing to sin. But the elements of that declared covenant stayed the same. They just were impacting and, and managed differently. So, for instance, be fruitful and multiply. Eve, I'm sorry, hon, you're going to have pain in childbirth. And yet you're still going to have children. You're still going to be fruitful and multiply. The proclamation that God gave didn't stop. The consequences of that did. Okay? Same thing with Adam. You know, you're going to have dominion. Only now you're going to have to do it with a hoe. Yeah. A hoe. A shovel. A pick. A rake. You're going to have to do it with implements instead of authority. Okay? See what I'm saying? So remember, it says, On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. So it is, this is a governance. It's, it's a, and this is where I'm having the hardest time trying to understand what I'm wanting to say about this. It's the mechanism of governing that God has declared and put in place for his relationships toward men and men's relationship toward him. Does that make sense? It's the, there's not another government. When God declares something, uh, it is either a perpetual or a temporary situation, a conditional situation, but while it's in effect, it's happening. So, for instance, uh, the not flooding the earth, that's a permanent one. Abraham's covenant of faith is a perpetual one. David's seating on the throne is perpetual, and you can see it because it's fulfilled right now in Jesus forever. The law was a conditional one, but nevertheless, men didn't make those conditions. God did. He declared those. So they come from him and it's there. So it's the governance that's established by God for people and for his relationship with them. And then the last one is it's the official way 
that God relates to men and for men to relate to God. All right, I want to expand on that a little bit. The new covenant, and I, 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 would, I wish I had this slide so I could set it up and put the official and only to emphasize it. It's the only way. The only way. Because the one that determines the way is God. And the one that is the way, down there in John 14, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, do you remember the question or the re response that he answered with that statement? Do you guys remember that? Thomas said, we don't know the way, Lord. We don't know the way. Yes, you do. I'm the way. I'm the way. The new covenant is the way that God relates to men and men relate to God. And it is in Jesus. So there's a ton of wisdom that you can gain from Confucius. And there's probably a lot of zeal that you can draw from Muhammad. And you could go through wise person and religious leader after religious leader and, and uh, writings and all this kind of stuff. But the new covenant, period, is the governmental structure and the mechanism of relationship that God is having with men and that men are having with God. And so, you know, we've abused that and we've minimized that by presenting it as if it's some sort of Christian faith exclusive. That's the wrong way to look at that. It is how God has chosen to touch every man. That's why when you go back to John and you listen to the fact that the life of Jesus became the light of men and enlightened every man's heart coming into the world. That's why when the Spirit is poured out, it's poured out on all flesh, not just the Jews, not just the Messianic Jews, not just the uh, aspiring Pentecostals. It's poured out all over the world on all flesh. The new covenant is bigger than we think. It's not just, it's not just a, it's not just the basis for communion, and it is not just for a few. So, uh, the passage in Colossians. Th think of this passage that Paul's teaching on, in light of this idea of this being the way. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say were the things on earth are things in heaven. Do you understand that this is not talking about a few people who have converted to Christianity? He's talking about bringing peace with creation, about bringing peace in the heavenlies, about bringing peace with people. I don't know the scope of it. I don't know how to think of the scope of it, except in the negative when I say, I say whether things on earth are things in heaven, I don't see any other place for things or people to hide from the new covenant. It is the governing structure for all of the cosmos and all the creation. It is. Okay, so let me, <laughs> thanks for asking. I should have punched it up. So my, my last point is, is uh, what's the culture of the new covenant? And I didn't like the word culture, so I thought, what's the personality of the new covenant? Because... I'm trying to get us to start thinking that Jesus is that new covenant. So what's the personality of it? So here it is in, in 1012. This is the New Testament uh, uh, translation and, and use of that prophecy from Jeremiah. Uh, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And we're going to talk about this idea about why is it that we can interpret this beyond the nation of Israel. But we'll get to it. So first of all, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. And so we are relating internally and not externally. But the same is ex exact thing is true about anybody that we're going to evangelize. I'm going over to Africa. 
I'm going to talk to people in their heart. They now have the capacity to respond and relate. Laurel and, and um, Richard just got back from Burning Man, and if there's anything to learn there from what they say, you guys are going to begin to hear and understand that it's that Christ has access to the hearts and has opened up the hearts of people to be able to respond to him. Correct, Richard? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so the, the thing goes from external to internal. The, me, the mechanical aspects, the true mechanical nature of how God is dealing with man and man is dealing with God right now is internal, heart to heart. It's, 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 it's happening, and, and we're there to bear witness to it. Okay, here's the other one. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, I, I want to do a super quick Greek study because I was explaining to Vicki that about nine times out of ten when I study something, I'm always surprised by some precious gem that the Lord gives, and I hope that I can convey this so you understand it. Um, I understand why I thought this was a precious gem is what I'm trying to say. Okay, so the Greek indicative mood is described like this. The action or state is represented as certain or already realized. That's the indicative mood. The subjunctive mood is that it is contingent, probable, and eventual, or eventual. Okay, do you understand the difference in those? When it's an indicative mood, it's a, it's a statement of an action that has already happened and is sure. When it is subjunctive, it means that it is contingent upon some things, it is probable, and it is eventual, uh, depending upon the process. All right, so the words, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, are both indicative. There's not a question about that. There's not a condition to that. It's stated right in here. And if you track this back, it's pulled like this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the writer of Hebrews out of the same sort of moods and tenses in the Old Testament prophecy. So while Israel was in exile and in rebellion, God said, I will make them my people. I will be their God, period. There's no contingency here. And they shall be my people. And it's the same sort of tense and mood and everything when Ezekiel, uh, in the midst of seeing this prophecy, again, Israel was in exile. There was no sign that God was on their side delivering them or anything along those lines. But the end of that whole thing, the fruit of a, a, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, was the indicative kind of idea. This isn't a question. This isn't a possibility. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be their God, and they're going to be my people. And it doesn't stop there. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest. Now look at this, and this is so beautiful and it's so detailed. Shall is subjunctive because there's a process involved. There's going to be an awakening to this, and people are going to... You see what I'm saying? It's conditional. There's, it's probable. It's eventual. It's spread out over time. But the for all will know me is indicative. It's indicative. It means there's no chance. It's already happening. That And so to me, that goes back again to the prologue of John. Every man that comes into the world's heart is enlightened by Jesus' life. It goes back to, to Pentecost. I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. Something big has happened, and it is contained within the context of the New Testament. That's where we're living. That's what we're living in. Now look at this last line. It's wonderful. For or because I will be merciful to their iniquities. That's indicative. 
That means it's already done. That means you don't have to go to God and ask for mercy. You're going to get mercy because he has proclaimed it and dictated it and decreed it as an essential element in the new covenant under which he is governing men and he is receiving men. And then it goes on, and I thought the detail of this was so precious and beautiful. I will, indicative, be merciful to their iniquities, and I will, subjunctive, remember their sins no more. Or as if you remember back when I talked about it, oh may, no, no way will I remember these anymore. Now, when I first saw this, I said, Lord, what does it mean? Why did you choose the conditional subjunctive for will remember their sins no more? He says, well, we still have to deal with them. You still have to come with me. I still have to release that which Jesus did. And so it's not, some, it's not just a freak of grammar or something here. God is open now to come without those sins being a barrier. Why? Because it's an indicative, finished fact. When you come to me, I will have mercy on your transgressions. But I'm not going to close my eyes to them. I'm not going to ignore that they're there. I'm going to heal you from them. I'm going to deliver you from them. I'm going to lift you up from them. Make sense? I thought it was awesome. Okay, so surrendering into Jesus' finished work is the art of living fully as a new covenant. That's all it is. Now, do you see the problem when we reduce our celebration and our veneration of the new covenant to just a communion celebration that highlights the fact that we're forgiven of our sins? Bless God we're forgiven of our sins. I love it. I love it, and I don't want to minimize it. Praise God that we can declare the death of Jesus all over the place. But, but if we don't think of the new covenant bigger than that and broader than that, we are going to be like almost every Christian you know. We are going to be deeply vulnerable to having a hodgepodge sense of the covenant we are in to try to get from where we are to where we need to go, or to try to receive somebody where they're at, to where they need to go. Let me back up and say that again. That was kind of confusing. Unless we take seriously the absolute realities that are a part of the new covenant, that touch on God being our God, us being as surely as the indicative mode can indicate His people, uh, us knowing Him, knowing that every person... so like. I've been talking about imagination and how we have to use it so that we can, uh, we can envision somebody the way they are actually instead of the way their sin makes them look. Or like Dave and, uh, and uh, Bob and Rich and I were talking about, like the Mona Lisa with a glass cover on it that somebody went in and spray painted and threw mud on. It didn't affect the painting at all. It's just the image that we have to get beyond. And if we know that, we're not going to be somebody who freaks out and panics over that when somebody manifests something ugly. Because the something ugly now is the point of mercy in the new covenant. And then God can take whatever time of process he wants to take the full healing of that in Jesus, the full deliverance of that in Jesus, the full forgiveness of that in Jesus, and apply it until a person is, come let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet, they should be as white as snow. The new covenant is the summation of every one of those amazing, amazing promises in the, in the Old Testament. So, here's what my conclusion of this is. We have to have a bigger view of this. Next week, we're going to celebrate communion, but we're going to do it and try to intentionally articulate the scope of what we're celebrating. Okay? 
It's not just going to be the declaration of death and the celebration of forgiveness. It's going to be the articulation of the reality of the new covenant. And the fact that that we ingest that, that we take it in, that it actually impacts us. So, surrendering into Jesus' finished work is the art of living fully as a new covenant believer. It's how we succeed as a new covenant disciple and a new covenant Bible student. Okay, so let me stop on the Bible student thing. If we don't have the proper breadth of understanding about the new covenant, we are going to be at liberty to pick and choose Bible verses that are from a variety of other covenantal relationships and not understand at all how they are today. Okay? That's why a lot of people still live as a disciple under the law. And they pick and choose the laws that they want to, they want to come under. And we don't have that right any more than Adam and Eve had a right to discern good and evil on their own, independent of God. And we are engaging as fully in the fall when we revert back to the old covenant, no matter how righteous it feels like. Do you understand that? We just can't do it. And when we do do it, it creates alienation, or the way Paul puts it, every time Moses is read, there is a veil pulled over your eyes. And the veil is to the reality of the new covenant. And if you look at that area of Scripture there in 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5, you'll see that where glory changes to glory is when we see it shining in the face of the gospel. In, I mean, the, the gospel glory shining in the face of Jesus Christ as we look at him because he's the new covenant. He is the essence of that covenant. So that's the Bible student part. The new covenant evangelist and witness. That's what it enables. It's the new covenant reality, not just some stumble into it. It's the new covenant reality that allowed Richard and Laurel and that team in Burning Man to go out there without shame, without any kind of compromise, without anything like that, and release, see the glory of the God, of God, the glory of the Father released in the heart of those people because they were honoring the dictates of the new covenant. I will be their God, indicative. They will be my people. So when Richard deals with somebody out there in Burning Man as if they were God's child, he is doing it under the full confidence and authority of the new covenant. And when somebody is saying, no, you've got to jump through a, a hoop of decision, you've got to jump through some kind of cultural acceptance before we can treat you as if you're in, that is... As surely as Adam and Eve chose their own way to determine what is good and evil, that is going back to another covenant that has passed away and inflicting in your own heart and on that person a misunderstanding and a grieve, grievous error about how God... Because the thing I was trying to say about the new covenant, it's the only way God's dealing with people now. It's it. It's the only way. You get in Hebrews, verse 13, even after that, uh, after, you know, I'll remember their sins no more. That which is obsolete is passing away. So you don't get any brownie points in the governmental system that controls the relationship of Almighty God to men and men to Almighty God by picking your favorite uh, self-righteous component of the Old Covenant and inflicting that on somebody. So that's why we've got to be New Covenant evangelists in the New Covenant. And the last one, and this is the one practically, is New Covenant husbands and wives and friends. The New Covenant is designed to let us open our hearts to one another. 
Why? Because as God grants, we have mercy. We don't have to perform for one another. We don't have to have conditional friendships and relationships. We can love because God loves us. This new covenant thing is huge and it's important. And I took a little long.